This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. Jeff here with my buddy Ashraf Hasham. Ashraf, how are you, my friend? Hey, Jeff. Good to hear from you. I'm great. I'm actually in Vermont right now visiting my um, my partner's father uh, who lives up here. And um, it's so glorious. We were on a hot tub airplane, which is what I call hot air balloons. <laughs> just last week it was super fun um and the fall colors are just glorious yeah how's everything in dc it is going well it's nice to be in the same time zone as you uh things here are great we are fully in the midst of fall um enjoying it i have spent a lot of time on zoom lately as as you full well know the months of oh, yeah. march june and october are pretty insane work months so this yeah. october is no different but got a chance to celebrate a little bit of a belated birthday um at a vineyard on the weekend which was really really nice um but i so appreciate the hot tub airplane i need <laughs> i need one of those i think um in my life that would have made my weekend so much better happy um, belated birthday my man thank you thank you it was uh it was one for the books for sure um and by that i mean i got to nap <laughs> and that is always a welcome Woo! thing at 32 yes well listen ashraf i know that you got a chance to talk to some new and old friends uh some people that we we know um in common and i'm really excited to hear about this conversation that you had about creative vitality and the creative economy and young people. Tell us a little bit about this conversation. Yeah, so I talked to um, a good friend, Randy Engstrom, and a new friend, David Holland, about the Creative Vitality Summit, which is an online conference that took place late September of 2021. And it was all about, like you said, the creative economy and, and access to generational wealth, access to um, systems change, access to policy change, access to all of the things that allow people like you and I and folks on the ground who are really doing this work, arts educators in our community of listeners here, to have access to, um, you know, being part of this moment in which we're able to envision a brighter, better future in which policy can be able to um, back us up and be able to tell us uh, or to be able to lead us to places of, uh, of cross-generational, essentially, per, per, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, prosperity, cross-generational prosperity, and, and being able to uh, have access to, again, that narrative to, um, which all sounds very abstract as I say it out loud, but I think as the listeners listen to this episode, they'll get an idea of what I'm talking about and why I'm so excited about it. So let's just uh, dive on in and we'll see you on the other side. Okay, hello, everybody. We are super excited to welcome our guests today. I'm here with David Holland and Randy Engstrom. We're going to be talking about the Creative Vitality Summit, which is a conference on the creative economy. And that took place in September 2021, like a few weeks ago from this recording. Um, and I'm just super excited to welcome David and Randy to this community. Hello, David. Hello, Randy. Hey. Hello, Ashraf. Lovely What's to see up? you. Uh, so great to be seen, but also heard by our listeners. Um, we're calling in from a couple different places. Um, and, and I'll just do some quick little passing offs. We're going to do this, this um, order today. David's going to go first and then Randy's going to go first. So whenever you hear the first voice, who's not mine, it'll be David's and the second one will be Randy's. Um, but let's just, let's just get into it, y'all. Um, David, where are you calling in from? And also uh, talk to us about uh, you, your work. Uh, and your journey. That's a little bit of how we, we start our conversations, at least how I start my conversations on this, this podcast. Um, talk to us, introduce ourselves to our, to our community here. Thanks, Ashraf. So this is David, David Holland. I'm calling in from Denver, Colorado, um, what's now called Denver, Colorado, on the lands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute. 
And I always find the question, tell us about yourself, a hard question to answer. A lot of times I don't know where to begin because I'm a really philosophical person. And sometimes I think I think to myself, who am I really? And, and what am I really? And all these things. But mm. I'll start with some descriptors that I think people can get some idea about me. Um, I'm an African-American cisgender gay man with Native American Cherokee ancestry on my father's side, my great grandmother. Um, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which is really far away from Denver. Um, and I have lived in London, England, Boston, Massachusetts, and now Denver, Colorado for long periods of time in my life. Um, but I've been fortunate enough to travel to lots of other places and work a lot of other places including a lot of places outside of the country. Um, I love cooking, working out, experiencing art and being involved in good work outside of my day job. So I'm one of those kind of people who serves on a lot of committees and all these things. I used to serve on boards, but there's too much of a time commitment. So I'm giving myself a break from that right now. Um, so I'm an Enneagram 5, an INFJ and an S and some other thing I did one time. And the way that they describe those things is the investigator, the advocate, and the peacemaker. I'll also say an INFJ is one of the rarest personalities in the world, apparently. And I've heard from a lot of people that they find it hard to read me, and some people find it hard to figure me out. So I think that Rare. makes a lot of sense. Um, I've had a lifelong love and passion for the arts, inspired largely by my family, some of whom have been professional or amateur artist. My brother, Dan, is an animator out in Hollywood. My Aunt Sheila, who passed away a few years ago, was trained as an opera singer. And my great-grandfather, who our family calls Big Daddy, was a jazz musician in New York City. Um, I've worked in arts and culture for the entirety of my career, but in very, very unusual roles that I've been fortunate enough to have. Um, I'll just draw out a few things that I think are um, maybe relevant or interesting for this audience. Um, I've worked in a creative youth development organization called Art 180 in Richmond, Virginia as a development director. I've also worked in an art school within a public research university, VCU School of the Arts, um, which sometimes is called the number one public art school in America. Um, I've evaluated and helped to develop major arts education programs in the UK, including one called Find Your Talent, um, and evaluated something called Creative Partnerships, which is like an arts education program in the UK that when it existed was larger than the entire wow. National Endowment for the Arts. And um, I've also managed a youth art competition in Boston with a major law firm there. So I've done some arts education, creative youth development work. My writings on arts education have been featured in the International Handbook of Creative Learning and all that jazz. So arts education, creative youth development is something that I'm really passionate about. I've also worked on a lot of development programs for artists and creatives in their working lives to help them to develop their careers. Like, that learning doesn't stop after That's K right. 12 or after um, you know, higher ed or further ed if you choose those paths. So learning is ongoing. So, and I think creative learning is important to all of us. Um, I'm the deputy director of something called WESTAF, the Western States Arts Federation. I also have an independent consulting practice that I started back in 2009 and work with clients internationally, including my favorite client, E3 Media, which is a London-based company that advances equity in the arts and media. I also teach in the arts administration program at Goucher College in Maryland. So that's a little bit about me. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, it's so great to have you. And you are decorated. This is an incredible resume. It's just selected also, audience. This isn't everything. But um, uh, yeah, I'm super glad to have you here. Um, and I'm super stoked to ask you some follow-up questions. But first, we'll turn it over to Randy. Uh, Randy, talk to us about you, your work, uh, and the journey that got you to where you are today. Yeah, uh, thanks, Ashraf. It's lovely, um, it's lovely to be in space with you again. Ashraf and I worked together for a while at the Office of Arts and Culture. I was the director of that office for eight and a half years. Mm -hmm. Did, did a lot of work around arts education. Shout out to the Creative Advantage, our collective impact arts education initiative. 
uh, that was co-created with Seattle Public Schools, Lara Davis and the Seattle Foundation, and did a lot of work around racial equity, did a lot of work around space affordability and anti-displacement. And uh, in general, just tried to advocate for arts and culture having a more prominent role in how the city sees itself and how we uh, reimagine the world that uh, that we exist in. Um, I Today, I do a couple of different things. I have a consulting business called Third Way Creative. We do public art. We do consulting. We help West Staff produce creative economy summits, the Creative Vitality Summit. Um, I also spend a lot of time uh, volunteering and doing advocacy. One opportunity I had once I left the city, once I left government work, was more time to volunteer and more time to do explicit advocacy. And so I spend a lot of time doing both of those. I helped to produce a podcast called Double Exposure, which is an awesome project. I am on the board of Langston and the board of the Cultural Space Agency for the folks in Seattle who are familiar with those. I'm on the board of Grant Makers in the Arts, where I've co-chaired their Racial Equity Committee for a number of years. And you know, this last year, and we'll get into this, I imagine, with the with the conversation around the summit. But yeah. what a remarkable moment in terms of both the crossroads the country finds itself in, the absolute dramatic shift of the economy in good and scary ways, the amount of federal resource that's available, and the window for policy change and systems change to happen at a level that I don't think has ever existed in my career, and. Uh, you know, excited to throw myself into that in whatever ways I can be helpful and productive and create a more just, more, more vibrant um, sector. Uh, before the city, I, I consulted for a while and did a lot of interesting projects. Prior to that, I founded the Youngstown Cultural Arts Center, which is probably the, um, the five years I spent the most hands-on with arts education and creative youth development. Arts Corps is based there, the service board is based there. Um, it was really, that was a really remarkable um, opportunity to run a 25,000 square foot cultural center that was focused on the lives of young people, uh, finding their power and their voice through the arts. And uh, I'm an ENFJ, which is, pro I used to be an ENFP and then I got more judgy as I got older. <laughs> um, but I think those are, I think ENFJs are pretty common, not as unusual uh, as as David. Um, I, I think David and I share a, a finding ourselves in a role of facilitator and mediator and dot connector within personal and professional um, and familial spaces. My road to arts administration and to, and to arts advocacy really came from, um, uh, I, at my high school had a radio station and through the radio, I became the program director and through the radio station, I had access to the music library and discovered independent label music and realized there was an entire ecosystem below the river that, um, that, that was, and a lot of it coming out of the Northwest, just sort of how I wound up in, in Seattle, it actually first at the Evergreen State College in Olympia. And it was through the, through Evergreen and through the radio station there that I started DJing. And it was through DJing that I started uh, producing events, hip hop shows and raves and punk rock concerts. And it was through producing events that I accidentally became an arts administrator. Uh, and then, but I was studying political economy. So later I wound up with a public policy degree and an arts administration career. And that's, uh, I don't know, I guess that's how David and I end up spending a lot of time together. I'm, um, I am a white dude, a byproduct of, uh, of, of, the, of both the suburbs and the city of Chicago where I was born and raised. I only know one of my biological grandparents and she is Melungeon uh, from uh, the Appalachian Mountains of Tennessee, sort of uh, the, the um, Appalachian answer to Creole. And uh, the rest of me is a byproduct of America for better or for worse. And uh, just trying to leave it better than I found it. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I appreciate you both um, doing what you do for the betterment of really all mankind, but particularly person kind and particularly um, here in the Western half of the United States uh, and perhaps broader than that. I mean, this Creative Vitality Summit that just happened um, brought along audiences, certainly from the U.S. and possibly from international, but let's just get into it. Talk to us about um, the Creative Vitality Summit and its place within arts education, creative youth development, um, and, and all of that for this audience here. And did you, in fact, get international audiences? There is an international audience for this, um, this podcast here. So um, I'm sure folks would be interested in hearing uh, what the, who, who was around and what was mentioned. Talk to us about it. David, you go first. All right, so to answer your question, yes, we had international audiences. We had international participants like speakers um, and panelists as well. Um, 
and we can talk about that a little bit more as we get into this conversation. The way I'd start talking about the Creative Vitality Summit, having had a little bit of an opportunity to breathe now that we're through it, is that it was a mashup of brilliant minds that in many ways were riffing on this idea of the creative economy, how it can contribute to our communities, um, but also how it needs to change. You know, as much as creative industries can contribute to our lives and enrich our lives, I think we've all experienced that, particularly during the pandemic. For those of you who may have heard about creative economy as an agenda, like an economic development agenda and those kind of things, it's really something that has been co-opted into inequitable economic agendas. And indeed, there was like a pretty strong emphasis in certain strands of it on like, you know, attracting and retaining a creative class in a region um, and some of the policies that go alongside that displace others. So I think it's something, you know, some people in our world and who work mm. in arts and culture actually don't respond to the term creative economy well because it has that baggage for them. Creative economy equals gentrification, creative economy. I thought of it as like, guys who worked in media yep. in East London who all had the same haircut and all that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so it's not always viewed as like the bastion of diversity and equity and inclusion in our communities and, and all of that. So I think we had to tackle that head on in this uh, conference. And so uh, for any of you, we'll make the recordings actually available on the West Staff website soon, like I'd imagine in the next couple of months if not sooner. And so you'll be able to see this if you're interested. But a lot of the conversations really, you know, focus in on how to create a more inclusive, how to create a more equitable creative economy, and how it can really support, you know, an agenda that is not so much about displacement and gentrification in our communities. So one of the interesting topics, and there were many that came up during the conference that I think is particularly important to an audience like this, is about the notion of leading across generations and that in doing so, you know, we honor our ancestors knowing that people have been doing this work far before us and people will be doing this work long after us, but that we can learn from and we really are standing on the shoulders of, as some people call it, um, or even harvesting the results of the efforts and the seeds that were planted by our ancestors before us. So that's like a starting point that many people talked about, which you don't hear talked about often, but in some of our communities, you know, ancestors are really important and we do recognize our ancestors and what they have given to us. Then recognizing that we have our moment, we have our stage, we have our, you know, place in history, and this is our moment to do our thing and to do it to the best of our ability, but knowing you know, yes. we are not gonna be here forever. And that that moment is in many ways a brief one. And so therefore we need to prepare a way for those coming and make sure that they're prepared and capable and confident to take um, their seats, to take their stages and do the work that they're here to do. So some folks are realizing that one yes. of their most important roles is providing a platform for younger leaders who many of the speakers talked about are better equipped to actually lead with social justice in mind. Like they're coming into this space, not thinking about how to navigate this system as it is, but how to create something new from the get-go. A lot of younger um, leaders that I work with say, you know, there's things that we're unwilling to tolerate or accept, mm. abide, <laughs> or deal with. Um, and I think that that's so refreshing. And I think many, of us, myself included, remember those same sentiments, but also remember when we realize how much we have to do to navigate within the environments that we all work in and the kind of institutions we work for and all of that. And I think a lot of younger people enter spaces, you know, a lot more equipped to really change them fundamentally. Um, and so providing a space for, providing platforms for, and in a lot of ways, stepping out of the way is a more meaningful thing in, in many cases to allow people to do those things and, and do new and exciting work and very brave work that's so different from you know, what we might be comfortable with at the moment. And so I think arts education and creative youth development are our foundations 
are foundations for young people Ooh. to develop those skills on um, what I might call creative leadership skills that they will need whether they decide or choose to enter the creative industries and be a sculptor, a graphic designer, an architect, or an activist or an influencer on social media or whatever it is that they choose to do with their work. Um, and I think that the creative economy is a powerful pathway for young people in our communities. I think it can be particularly powerful for people from BIPOC communities as some of us call them um, and really give uh, ways for people to share their talents with the world. And I think in a more technologically enabled and socially connected world, there's more opportunities to do that now than ever. So I do think the kinds of work that we were talking about in the conference as a whole speak to young people and speak to arts education and creative youth development and the importance of it in a lot of ways. Um, and that's my thoughts about it for now, at least. Oh, that's so cool. Um, wow. So much of that is so salient. And, and the reason I was happy to have this or excited to have this conversation in the first place is because um, I, I agree with you that this is a time and a place for young people to lead and to make the, the folks who are uh, who have been in the systems step out of the way so the systems can change. I also think that this is a, a moment where the economy is changing, right? And Randy, we had this conversation uh, what, two, three years ago um, in the city of Seattle adopting a creative economy plan. Um, so I think of you often when, when I think about this, but it's about um, getting young people the tools it takes, which often are, are inherent in the creativity of young people who just have to sort of tease it out with, with the education system as it is now and, and, and use that to really access generational wealth for young people, especially those who've not had access to that generational wealth before. Um, so Randy, talk, talk to us more about, uh, about the Creative Vitality Summit and, uh, and these themes that David had started us off with. Yeah. Um... Well, first, yeah, plus one to everything David said. Uh, it, it was a it was a remarkable collection of of thinkers and of people and of ideas and of sort of pushing and pulling on on assumptions and on current models. And I, th I thought it was a really powerful group of people. Um, you know, Ashraf, I, I was thinking a lot about you know when I when David reached out to me and 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 offered me the opportunity to partner with him on this on this particular event. Uh, I thought a lot about the work we did in 2019 and that basic research question of how can we grow the creative economy while reducing disparities in the creative industries. And for me, that was a bit of a through line of the work. I, I do think that the reason I care about the creative economy is actually the same reason I care about arts education, which is that, you know, the, the creative economy, creative work in this country uh, represents, you know, the third largest or second largest and fastest growing segment of the national economy. And it's one of the only things that won't be replaced by robots or AI. And I want to see young people, particularly young people who are the furthest from educational justice and opportunity, have the opportunity to succeed and thrive in that economy. And that economy is going to be driven by creativity, empathy, human storytelling. Um, it's going to be driven by things that are, that are unique to the human experience. And what I think the summit allowed us to do was get under the hood a little bit and say, so how do we actually do that? And for one, it was just really lovely to have a bit of a community of practice and to have Westaf as a partner say, we're gonna be in this for a minute. We're gonna be in this for a few years. We're gonna write a pre-conference paper and we're gonna sort of put all these ideas on the table and see where we can go with it. We also sort of really named the policy and systems change moment that we're in, the, whether it's the Creative Economy Revitalization Act, whether it's the infrastructure bill, whether it's uh, you know different federal workforce uh, policy opportunities, there's really a unique moment. And that policy thread really did um, move through so many of the conversations. The idea of moving from sort of capitalist slash competition towards more cooperative, um, something that Alberto Mejia called withness, uh, which I really, that really stuck with me, this idea that like, how can we do things with each other, not ahead, not, not behind, not next to, but with, and um, what does an economy look like that, that has, you know, more of the principles of a solidarity economy, more democratic governance, collective ownership sort of ideas. And that's not to say it's anti-capitalist, it's to say it's, it's more cooperative and less competitive. And that, and that shared prosperity is a really interesting model when looked at in, in its application. 
um, that, that tension of the world as we'd like it to be versus the world as it is and how we move it a little closer on that continuum towards the way we hope it could be. I think uh, Laura Zabel from Springboard for the Arts really spoke powerfully to that. Um, there was some real honest critique, not just of, of like capitalist constructs, but also of the nonprofit model. You know, uh, I believe it was described as the rock, the, the backpack full of rocks that we're all carrying around this like scarcity model of nonprofits and the systems that govern them that that uh, in many ways challenge the, the imagination and possibility that I think creatives would like to bring to their work. And then um, uh, Felipe Butrago called it the shackles of grants. You know, we're all beholden to this transactional system that's largely uh, a reporting mechanism um, or like an administrative function. And how can we sort of free ourselves of that? And that was, there was a really incredible conversation about the future of creative work um, where they, this idea of guaranteed basic income and what does it mean to resource artists to do their work and understand that their work will benefit community and the actual value and return on investment of investing in artists and creatives at the community level. I, I, I found that really powerful as well. So, you know, as David said, I don't think everyone agreed, but I thought it was, I thought that was really important that we, that we brought all these different ideas together and we began to explore what they could look like when they were overlaid with one another. And that's, I think, how you build that community of practice. And I think, you know, creative economy and arts education have a, have a, have a direct correlation, in my opinion. Let's make those pathways and, and roadmaps easier to navigate and more accessible for young people. David, I see you nodding your head. You want to build off anything that Randy started going off on? Um, I was just going to say there were many times um, during what Randy shared that I was nodding my head. Um, I think what I was going to say is that arts education is critical to there even being a creative economy. Um, and I think that sometimes that is forgotten. Um, and certainly things have changed. And in my work over time, I'm aware of, there's different ways to think about arts education. Arts education exists in K-12 as part of formal education. Arts education exists outside of school. Arts education exists online and communities and learning from people. There are so many ways for people to access all types of skills that can be beneficial to them and to help them express their creativity. And some of that can lead into you know, a position at a company. It can lead into creating your own um, organization and being an entrepreneur. It can uh, you know, influence you to have you know, a very rich creative life outside of work, so many things. But really, when we talk about a creative economy, there is no creative economy without arts education. Absolutely. Yeah, and the fact that, like you said, it's essential <laughs> because if young people and folks in general don't recognize their creativity, then how much um, are they able to rely on that or even like believe in it, right? A lot of people, don't even, you know, I'm one of the few people who thinks everybody's an artist, but if you mention, if somebody hears me saying that, they will, the first thing they'll say is like, no, 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 I'm no artist. What are you talking about? And that itself is just like a sign, right? Like we ourselves as a community, as a, as a public, don't value creativity or artistry. In fact, they, we see it as intimidating. We see it as inaccessible. In the same way that folks in the summit, as you mentioned, maybe don't connect with the word economy and see that as, as threatening, right? Um, I found that, that thread that you both pulled apart so interesting. As I was engaging folks to be part of the summit conversation, really reacted to creative economy as an extractive framework. Um, and I, because I, I think a lot of economic development is seen as, can be seen as extractive. It's largely monetarily evaluated. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I always feel like, uh, there's the Edgar Villanueva decolonizing wealth frame, and there's the Audre Lorde, the, the, you can't use the master's house tools to dismantle the house frame. And I think both are valid. <laughs> and, I've, and, I've, and I've lived in both um, sort of worldviews at different times in my life. But I think, I think you know, we, we have the systems and policies that, that, that govern our life now. How can we make them better? And how can we, or how can we hack them to get a different result? I think that's sort of a little bit of what drives me. Yeah, um, in thinking about this, I do think a lot of people respond, especially in arts and culture, respond to the word economy negatively and creative economy together, sometimes even more negatively because of 
one, the creative, which sometimes there's like, well, what about artistic or what about cultural? So there's that um, and the economy frame. And I'll say that, you know, one of my degrees way back when, maybe two of them sort of are related to economics. So I'm not someone who's like afraid of that. And I also know that there's many theories and ideas around economics. And there's a way in which, you know, we do all live in an economic system, whether we would like to or not. <laughs> and so there is a, a need to know how to navigate it in some kind of way. I think what was great about this conference is that people were bringing alternative viewpoints on economics, on economies, and how we can move things forward. Um, for those who you know are interested in economics, I'm sure that this term is nothing new to you, but neoliberal economics is just one theory and um, approach to economics. And indeed, there are many, many, many others. And I think the great thing about the space that we were able to create is that people were able to present different ideas about the economy and how it functions, how it could function, um, and to really get down to even some pretty practical and core issues, like how do people who um, work in creative fields, creative workers, how do they actually build sustainable careers and how do they make that work in the system that we currently have? And what can we do to change that system to make it easier for people to develop a career as a creative worker, as an artist, as a content creator, as a lot of things. The, the interesting thing is, and I think the session on creative workers was really illuminating, and we certainly hope, hope that it was illuminating for the audience, is that people very well may be an artist or musician. They also may have a consulting practice and you know, lead people through different types of processes and facilitate meetings and develop strategies for communities and all of these kinds of things that the creative mind can definitely be applied to the production of artistic work, but it also can be put to lots of other interesting um, endeavors. And indeed, creative people do that every single day. Um, it's really rare for people to just do one thing but even doing those many things and often having to sort of be an entrepreneur, even if they don't want to be, they do have to navigate how to get fair compensation, how to deal with periods in which there isn't that much work, you know, real realities that really inhibit people's ability to be successful in this. And then for some of us, you know, we also have to face an environment that is still very inequitable in which discrimination and other things still does happen, which make it even more difficult for us to make a creative career path or life path actually work for us. So real. I love when you said people don't just do one thing. I mean, yeah, we're humans. And the fact that creative humans also think about the systems that we're in as they weren't designed to work. Like workarounds is my favorite thing. <laughs> and a lot of creative people thrive off of, uh, off of parameters so they can work around those parameters. So they can get you what you need without knowing that you needed it, right? Like that's the type of stuff that um, I'm just always so impressed with working with young people because it comes naturally to them. They're of course gonna be testing the limits on all of these systems because the systems are new to them. If we could only keep <laughs> that, that front and center, right? Like it's not about the system, it's about the end goal, right? How do you get to the end goal? Um, I think, yeah, we would all be, <laughs> yeah, it, it would, we would get there differently and, and we wouldn't rely on the systems that, were, uh, that are now corroding right actively to use your um, to to your point earlier randy around like this is a moment a po moment potent in policy opportunity um so speaking of what are the next steps after the summit are there policy recommendations that will be produced um what, what what can we what can we expect right i'll at least start off and i'm interested to hear randy's thoughts on what should happen next also um one of the things that Randy mentioned in his comments was this notion of a community of practice, and that's something that we're dedicated to. We're going to do these summits for over three years. So our first was this year. There'll be another next year and then one the following year at a minimum. And over the course of time and having those summits slash conferences, which are great to have, and of course, 
It's a lot of wonderful ideas shared, but we also want to facilitate what we call a community of practice, which means people who are willing to come together and collaborate on applying this thinking into real work in the world over that and beyond. And so we'll probably be bringing together subsets of the groups that participated in the summit, both the speakers and panelists and some of the participants as well to continue these conversations. We know a strong constituency for this event was actually state and local arts agency. There also were a number of foundations present um, and a number of other types of um, constituencies. There were actually a surprising number in many ways of artists and creative workers who attended as well. So I think that those are some potentially natural affinity spaces, but we also might try to create some spaces in which you know, we can cross pollinate across those different groups representing like the public sector and that perspective, private philanthropy um, and the concerns of artists and creative workers directly to move forward. I think that also Randy mentioned that there are some specific items currently that WESF and our partners and lots of others across the entire field are involved in. The Creative Economy Revitalization Act is a major opportunity. There are also um, conversations that are being advanced at a state level in the 13 states that we represent, including California, um, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Alaska, Nevada, you know, I'm not gonna name all 13, but just to give you an idea, Hawaii. Then in some of those states, they're actually moving forward these conversations around um, universal basic income, around portable benefits, around other very specific policy measures. Um, that folks want to work on and try to advance. I think that that's, you know, a direction. We're having a lot more direct contact with people who work in economic development spaces about how to appropriately integrate creative economy as an agenda within economic development in more inclusive and equitable ways. So we'll be working on that. So I think that there'll be things that range from specific pieces of legislation to you know, working toward possible changes to the legal structure or benefit structure in some states or even nationally as we move forward. And there's a huge space available for local and state and even federal economic development strategies to incorporate um, arts and culture and the creative economy in a more meaningful and again, more inclusive way. So I think that that's some of it. There's a lot of work certainly to be done. And one thing that I'll say is that you know, this is also a moment in which part of the reason that we have the systems that we currently have is because of particular types of cultural reference points or viewpoints. And one of those is sort of like that we're in a position in which we understand everything and know everything and as experts, we can craft the solutions to everything <laughs> in a technocratic way. And actually we need to have a lot more messy conversations um, that are sometimes inconclusive to lead us to different strategies that are not just about people who consider themselves to be smart developing solutions that will solve the problems in all of our lives. So I think as Westaf, we're really committed to continuing to convene spaces in which we can have these conversations, advance, advocate on behalf of particular policy measures that we think are important and advance this more equitable and inclusive vision of the creative economy, but we don't um, pretend to have all the answers and we're not gonna produce the national creative economy strategy for America that is going to solve all of these problems. But I think over time, working in coalition and in collaboration with others, we will arrive at solutions to some of the challenges that we're faced with. Um, <clears throat> yes to all of that. I, I, and I, I, you know, I don't know that West Staff can convene all of it or fix all of it, but I think they're positioned to do a lot more than most. Um, and I think David's right. I think there definitely were clear affinity or constituency groups. I've talked um, to a lot of funders who really enjoyed the conversation and who really wanna know where to put their um, agency to move these conversations forward. And you know, um, there's, a, there's a real appetite in, grant, in arts grant making right now, speaking from the board of GIA in, in challenging old models, building new models, finding more equitable ways to, to, um, to, to empower communities towards self-determination. 
And I think um, there's a big appetite for that. I, yeah, the policy opportunity at every level of government, certainly there was a ton of local arts agencies in the room, all the way up to shout out to Maria Rosario Jackson, uh, the new leadership at the NEA. Um, you know, front to back, there's just more policy opportunity than I, than any time I can remember in my life. And if we, I think Westaf is very well positioned to hold some of that space. There's an academia part of this too, you know, and that uh, academia and arts education both have been peripheral to the conversation, but if we were more intentional, I'm also just thinking about how things like community college might be part of the infrastructure bill or the, or the build back better plan. And there's a real opportunity to align our investments, K-12, post-secondary and career connected. Um, and then, and, you know, I think there's a, David and I've talked a lot about the, the, the disconnect between academic cultural policy and field-based um, practice of cultural policy and how can we connect those dots a little bit better. We're at a really interesting national crossroads moment around advocacy for arts and culture uh, and what shape that takes, who's on that bus, where that bus is going are all very interesting questions to me. I think West Staff is is uh, among the folks in that at that table, but I think where that table chooses to go will be very interesting. Um, individual artists, I think David is right. There was a lot more individual artists and creative workers than I think we anticipated and giving those folks a platform to, to organize. And then, you know, I, I think David's approach is exactly right. Instead of, you know, David and I as the directors decreeing what a policy framework is gonna be and sending that down to the affinity groups for their reflection. And then they send it to their member, like actually letting those affinity groups source it from their constituency up through a model whereby that could become a policy agenda um, or an advocacy agenda or a you know program agenda. I think that's that's the way it's going to move. And so, you know, who are the interested people that want to partner and hold space? And then how do we ensure that that table is set and the people that need to be at it can be at it and um, be mindful of blind spots, be mindful of barriers. But I thought it was a pretty um, inclusive group. And I think we have to keep that focus. And um, it's just about the power of convening. And my God, when we can all not do this on a Zoom screen, can we not do this on a Zoom screen? I'm so tired of doing it on screens. It's been great because we could like, you know, we, as David said, they probably didn't have the budget for like 40 percenters and hundreds and hundreds of people if we had done it uh, IRL. But um, I miss IRL. I miss I wish there could have been a physical space where all the presenters could have coexisted over a meal or over a drink or over coffee and just see what comes out of that. Uh, that's what, that's something that I'm very excited to see at some point. Until then, and it's hats off to you, uh, David and Westaff for trying something out like this for a period of three years, putting that commitment on the ground and, and starting it in a way that scales it to be what we, what we envision, Randy, as he, as he eloquently mentioned. So thank you, uh, David, for, for leading this body of work at Westaff. Um, I'm excited to see what other conversations come from it, including those from this community here. So we'll be sure to link a lot of this, this content into the show notes as well. Um, I love what you said, uh, Randy, about, and David, that you, you had introduced this idea of direct access to the grassroots folks pushing policy agendas, right? And even defining that for them, because part of the, the thing is folks in the grassroots level may not be thinking about policy agendas, but really all, everything they're doing can translate that stuff. You just need the translators in between. And I see you both, in addition to being um, you know, mediators, facilitators, and, and dot connectors, translators, right? Uh, to, to folks on the ground doing this work, to the folks who uh, arbitrarily have a ton of power uh, and can be able to make this happen. It could be as easy as understanding what it is to produce a policy agenda or a policy paper or, you know, all of those things. So in that light, um, any, any, anything you want to uh, add there in terms of making it accessible for folks to be making these sort of decisions um, with each other, with community? I'd say um, one thing that came out of the conversation that I recall is this notion that some of our communities, and I, it was Carlton Turner subculture that said this, some of our communities have gotten out of practice of self-determination and leading themselves and shaping the lives that their communities want to have. And indeed, like a lot of communities have been shut out of opportunities to influence policy. There's also the pressures 
of 21st century life that mean that very few of us can show up to every one of these meetings and talk to local officials directly and like, you know, all of these other things. And although our processes are public, you know, that actually is very difficult for much of the public that doesn't have a vested interest to be involved in the political process. I think the core of it and making it accessible is giving, giving people a platform and an opportunity to share their ideas about both what yep. the issues and challenges are that they face and their ideas about solutions to some of those challenges. And I think that that's one of the best ways for us to get new policy propositions on the table. Ooh. A lot of policy is actually a rinse and repeat of strategies that we've been pursuing for decades. And I don't think that we need more of that. I think that we need more spaces in which people can generate ideas about how to really solve some of the challenges that they're having. And I think that that could serve as an inspiration for really new policy that I think would better serve the interests of our communities. Mm -hmm. And we have to think that, you know, a lot of policy was shaped to benefit certain people in certain communities at the expense of others. We also don't need more of that. So we definitely need to make sure that we center different voices who have different worldviews and on what some of the solutions are. And I think that that will put us in a good position to, to develop new policies. Yes to all of that. Um, it turns out that communities are pretty savvy at knowing what they need if we can just give them the tools to engage in the solution making. My dream is to go to a candidate forum when asked about the value of arts in their life or their community, their answer isn't my kid plays cello, so I get it. Like that's fine that your kid plays cello, but I want to, I want to think about the impact of culture at scale. I want to think about creativity as a, as a driver of civic identity and civic, um, civic life. And, you know, I think that does happen. We're just not great at talking about it. And too few people have the tools to, 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 um, or are given the tools or the access to the tools to be able to make that argument and to, and to be able to bring forward that frame. You know, for example, David and I, in, in with one of the moderators, we're having this conversation um, around social practice and social practice art is super fascinating. It's pretty rarefied uh, as like a as like a corner of the of the world of public art. And, you know, the folks who do it well, folks like Deaster Gates and Candy Chang and Post Commodity, um, really brilliant people. Uh, and also we talked about how other people that are doing that work are like artists that run mutual aid networks in their community and artists who do a lot of organizing in their community. They're using their creativity as a way to build social capital to meet community needs. And, and if we can unlock more uh, ways to do that, I think that's really interesting versus having yet another argument about more grant funding for this particular program. Yes, we need more grant funding for all the programs, but I think we also need new policy ideas and we need to figure out where and how we can meet the needs of a community as they exist today. Um, and, you know, what are the different approaches we can, we can take to doing that? Mm. Until we can get there, I'm super excited to have you both at the, at the table and, and, and invite this community here um, to be part of the conversation. Um, it reminds me of a conversation I had last week with um, Juanis Floyd of Arts Education in Maryland Public Schools, who um, is starting a lobbying firm, y'all. I don't know if you heard, but she's starting her own lobbying firm for this very reason, right? To empower folks um, and give them the tools to, to be able to take their lived experience, translate that into effective and almost like so simple, it's profound policy solutions, right? Like um, it, can, it can be that easy. But if it isn't for folks like like you both, like Juanis, like the other folks in this community, um, I don't know where we would be. So I'm, I'm super happy to be able to call you all a part of this family here. And, and as we do with all family members here, we're going to be winding down our conversation with some quick lightning round questions. So we're going to do this A-B style. So David, you are A and Randy, you are B. We're going to have five questions. So David, you will start and, and end. But I'll start with, so I'll start with you, David. Um, Question one, who inspires you? All right, I'll keep this brief. Um, my family, um, my ancestors, because they survived a lot of things. Um, and really everybody mm -hmm. out here um, who is making it day by day. And what I mean by that is I see a lot of people just going around my daily business that inspire me because I know what it takes actually to keep going in the face of sometimes really challenging situa situations and surmountable odds and all the things that life 
throws at us, people who are raising families and rearing children and, you know, making all of this stuff work on top of that. I just have so I'm inspired by them and have so much admiration and respect for them. Thank you. Randy, what keeps you motivated? My almost six-year-old daughter, Nevaeh Hollis Ingstrom. She is um, the light of my life and the most important person in my world. And she's such a brilliant um, singer, performer, artist, uh, empath. And, um, you know, she's, she's growing up in a complicated world. You know, she was born you know, six months before Donald Trump became president. And, you know, there was a pandemic that closed her preschool. And <laughs> Like she's been through a lot and she's an incredibly resilient kid. And um, I'm both inspired by her strength and resilience and also really called to, to make things better for her and her generation. Beautiful. David, where are you most at home? It took me a minute to think about this, but I'm on a walk in the city at night. Mm. And Randy, how do you stay focused? Um, I go for a lot of walks. Uh, I know that like the pandemic has been the golden age of walks. And so, cause that's like all we have, but uh, I live near a park near Jefferson park in Seattle. And I walk that park at least once a day. And um, by moving my body and listening to music, I can, I can let my brain um, expand and contract in the ways that it needs to. I spent prior to, you know, my newfound freedom, I spent a lot of time in back to back to back to back Zoom meetings, 60 hours a week. And I found that I, my, my brain wasn't able to, to spark. It wasn't able to find the creative um, catalyst that it needed. And so the walks and the air and the music and the combination of those things helps me stay fresh. Uh, and David, why change? Great question. Um, to me, change is inevitable and it's unavoidable. And also to me, therefore, it's better to add your intentions into the flow of it, into the flow of that change, rather than being entirely subject to it. Mm, influence it. Don't just be influenced by it. I'm into it. Well, thank you both so much for taking time to be part of this um, this amazing community and network of change makers and uh, and folks who are out here trying to make life better for each other and and the young people we work with. I appreciate you both, David and Randy. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Ashraf. It's great to see both of you. Thanks, Ashraf. And we're back, Ashraf. Oh, what a really great conversation. First of all, these two are just kindred spirits, I feel. I, totally. I so much appreciated their introductions and just the uh, transparency of, of who they are and the, the perspectives they bring to this table. But I will say, when you told me that you were doing an interview about the creative economy, all of my like little red flags went off because that is something I actually have so many thoughts about, um, especially because of the hijacking of the concept of the creative economy away from the creatives that constitute it towards mm. a capitalist approach. So I was so excited to hear this interview and hear all of those um, issues sort of put to bed right at the very start uh, and to think more of the creative economy as a almost a grassroots movement, um, which gives me so much hope and so much um, just forward energy with, with young people in the next generation. What did you think about sort of the idea of, of reframing this item that has become almost a little bit of a political target in our field? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I certainly have heard um, the, the um, wanting to step away from the word economy a, a, in and of itself. It makes people triggered in a way, as we talked about in the conversation. Um, and I loved the fact that it was paired with and at the same time contrasted with social practice and mutual aid networks and creativity as social capital to meet community needs. I think that was all um, really, really interesting. And it put words to feelings that I think I've had around the creative economy that I never knew how to sort of articulate. And so this conversation was really, really helpful for me to be able to just have more um, dialogue about what this could mean for us. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I 
in my graduate degree, wrote a master's thesis that sits promptly on a shelf because I do not really have a lot of respect for what I wrote about at the time. I thought hmm. I was really brilliant and I've now learned a lot more and it is um, in some way sort of reinforcing problematic norms um, that I was subscribing to at the time. But the point in sharing that is to say that I actually wrote about arts education viewed through three different lenses. One being what I dubbed the Floridian lens, which was Richard Florida and the creative class and the creative mm -hmm. economy and sort of the argument that we need arts and cultural education programs to attract a certain type of people to a city and almost to push a little bit of gentrification and, you know, all of those types of, of more um, uh, socio-hierarchical impacts. And, you know, it, it's just really interesting to think of that now because I feel like at least through the conversation that you had, there's a reclaiming of that narrative to say it's actually not about attracting people for, you know, these, these reasons, but instead to allow people to find themselves and to find a community of practice um, in what they're doing, rather than, say, identifying as a creative and moving to Seattle, because that's where you should be right. moving, instead sort of staying where you are and having a quote-unquote economy that surrounds you. And I just think that that's really interesting. Yeah, that took it beyond, I think, where the conversation left off. I appreciate you taking it that extra step because you're right. It's not about um, where we fit in, but it's about how where we are fits into um, the creativity and the vitality that we already are expressing no matter where we are, no matter what moment we're in. That what I think we... Um, we could talk more about and 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 just need more like I said vocabulary for is that collective ownership piece that that mm -hmm. was really interesting to me too you know things about um co-ops and and shared prosperity in real actual economic tools um those kind of things I'm sure were talked about at the summit um and and I'm excited to see how these communities of practice begin to really sort of gnaw on not only the advocacy and the policy pieces, but these tools, right? These actual existing economic tools that exist. I think that's really interesting too. Right, they go beyond just that, you know, what was that corporation? I feel like this made the rounds in social media like two years ago, the, the organization that just pays everyone $75,000 and it leads to greater prosperity for everyone. Mm. It's like, well, that's certainly one model and, and great. And, and if that's what you, your organization does, fantastic. Maybe I, we should give that a go at Create a Generation. But what are the other tools? Like, what are those really practical things? I think we can talk about words like vitality and shared shared um, shared prosperity and things like those look great in, in flowery letters on a declaration. But how does that actually become plausible? And I think one thing you know, that, that you said to me when we were previously, you know, off the record, talking about this conversation was the, that idea of sort of shared ownership and the idea that grassroots folks are really leading the discussions around policy agendas, which is something that I find absolutely fascinating as we think about movement building, as we think about um, the changes that we wish to see in our big systems, right, those big paradigm mm -hmm. shifts within our systems that govern our work, like tax policy, you know, hey. like ed education systems, like philanthropy, you know, these are fairly abstract, but what happens to those systems when there's a grassroots movement to um, sort of push an agenda within them that doesn't come from, say, the elected or appointed or ascended leaders of those systems? Yeah, maybe it's co-created, right? Like that's I think what 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 artists do so well, and that's something that I got from David in this conversation too. He said that artists are increasingly leading this type of work, both advocacy and in the equity and social justice space, and that he's excited to see that and is inspired by their ability to envision a better future. I think that's what um, these politicians are are literally sort of asking us to vote for them to do, right? So how can we insert our um, our yeah our reality into to into their uh, policy and and and, um, and moving and shaking and all the other things. Yeah, that and that's just, really really fascinating. That just inspired a thought. Imagine someone running on a platform to say, "Please elect me, so I can step aside." Ooh, right. See, like that's I like I'm have. willing to take the the jump and do the job, but immediately my first action would be to like cede power to all of you. I I just think that is so amazing and and something that we actually see in 
you know, youth arts programs, right? There it you is. know, that you have executive directors who say, yeah, I'm in this role because I don't know, I'm over the age of 18 and can sign contracts, for example. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But then I'm going to immediately cede decision-making power to, to these folks and it will be my role to carry that out, uh, to these young folks, I should say. And I, I, I wonder how our field at the intersection of, of arts and culture and education and youth development and social change could actually inspire action within other fields that we have to deal with in our work, like the economy, like um, public policy and, and, and so forth. It's, it's interesting to think of ourselves and maybe a little bit self-aggrandizing, but to think of our field as one that could really lead the way. Absolutely. And well, I think it's, it's, it's like a secret, right? Like almost like an inside joke because <laughs> it feels a little bit like we all know that artists are the, the sort of the edge of movements, whatever they may be. And um, certainly at the edge of social change and the fact that we are also putting artists, teaching artists in this case, in spaces where they're providing a platform for younger leaders you know i think that is um like you said the youth voice component and creative youth development such a, a core uh, notion to that work that of course artists are going to cede their power to younger um, folks because what we do is is we experiment right we 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 um create together we co-create right so even if it is a young person leading and 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 shaping the thing and an, a caring adult a teaching artist is there to help mold that into something that can work in this environment in this context i think um, that's a really brilliant connection you made to creative youth development in this conversation jeff thanks for that no it is it is absolutely my pleasure i mean that is where my brain <laughs> spends most of its day is thinking about all of these big, hairy, crazy things happening in our world and, and what that means for, for the work that, you know, you and I share. And I, I was really inspired by this dialogue too, um, in the vein of what you're saying in, in just almost the naming convention, right? They talked mm. about creative vitality, which I think is such an easy thing for our sector to just like tack creative onto the beginning of anything as a modifier. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we sort of have ownership or we've now identified the role, but to actually think about the embeddedness that um, young creatives in particular can have, or that artists can have, or that that youth um, or the next generation of decision-making can have. And it's not just an afterthought. It's not just decoration to the event or the, the um, policy or whatever, but instead is actually part of the process. And, mm -hmm. um, and that really, I just want to underscore that. You said that earlier and that, that really um, transcended the work that they did at this virtual summit, I think. Yeah, and in the, you know, I'm not even sure if I said this in the interview, but the it feels like an oxymoron, the words creative economy together, right? And so to be able to talk about things like neoliberal economics, which I was just kind of hanging on a thread by in the conversation, mm -hmm. um, to all the way where we talk about creative minds, like you said earlier, applied to any type of work, just makes it all the more richer, all the more deeper, all the more relevant to folks um, in a lot of different seats staring at this one thing right people uh, like David said in the interview don't just do one thing <laughs> you know people do a lot of things and creativity helps um, helps the mind and helps the body and the spirit to be able to align and adapt to all of those things because they all we're all one large you know expansive multitudinous being um, and of course an economy puts us in lots of little buckets or perhaps one you know not well labeled bucket and so I wonder if we can apply all of those things to this larger system that we're all in, this economy, um, whether that can, you know, we, whether we can change the dialogue, the narrative, as you had said earlier, too. And to take that a step further, how can we also apply that type of creativity sort of within ourselves, right, to reconcile mm. those different buckets? I mean, certainly, I know for me, like, I'm a I'm a person who goes out and spends money and I don't like paying taxes and I would like more <laughs> money for myself to, you know, yeah. go up in a hot air balloon or a um, hot tub airplane, um, <laughs> you know, as you called it, right? Like that's fantastic. But I also recognize like, I want 
my neighbors to have health care. And I want, you know, my community to um, have certain, you know, elements to it that are funded through the collection tax dollars. And so I think that there's also some creative processes that help us think deeper and not to allow that that almost forced upon segmentation of ourselves to say, mm. oh, you know, but but you're an artist, so therefore you should be for these political things, or you're a, you know, a homeowner, so therefore you should care about these economic things, or you know, you have kids in the school, so therefore you should care about the public education system. Like, I don't have kids in the school, but I also don't want to be surrounded by dumb people. Like, I would like people to have a really robust education and to think outside the box and you know, to have um, other types of, of supports that come with the public education system, for example. And, you know, if we fall into that segmentation, it allows us on an individual, on a per, it, deep interpersonal level to be mm. divided. And I think there are creative processes that allow us to grapple with and reconcile and put together uh, a set of values. And I think it's like those values sort of like they were talking about in the, in the values that sort of underpinned this gathering, yeah, right? Yeah. That bring those multiple segments together and help us navigate that, that dark, gray, confusing area in between. Yeah, like Randy was saying, it's this, um, it's the withness, right? Not mm. ahead, not behind, but with the community doing this work or trying to define this work or trying to uh, mold it so that it actually works for us. The I was really inspired by, and and, and luckily I, I um, I've heard this from Randy several times since I used to work for him. Um, but the creative economy, it's essential that it while we grow it we have to reduce the disparities within it, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, there's no way that we can do that otherwise. And that can't happen without the folks most impacted at the table. I 100% agree, which is maybe a new golden rule, you know, love that. that we can't talk, you know, do unto others as you would have do unto you, make decisions with those <laughs> who are impacted. <laughs> yes. so, you know, it just seems so simple, but it's so worthy of a, an elevation, I think, in this this time. Um, well, Ashraf, that really brings us here to the end of this yeah. episode. Thanks for sharing this conversation. It certainly was one that is um, eye-opening and, and gets my brain going in a lot of different directions and a crucial one to think about as we approach our work with the next generation of, of young creatives who no doubt will be contributing to the creative economy and hopefully leading it. Yeah, and this was, you know, this conversation was one for my heart as well, because um, as you know, and as listeners know, as they listen to this, these, these episodes is that uh, the creative economy and getting young people access to generational wealth. I mean, this is the moment, right? This is the moment, especially with COVID and all the policy implications that come with it and the opportunities that are created. Um, we could really have an opportunity here in this potent moment to be able to see what the future of creative work, creative work actually looks like and how it's compensated and how we're all um yeah how we're all become uh become with it all um <laughs> to sort of tie it all together so uh, appreciate you uh, hosting this with us jeff and i'm excited to hear from our community as to what you know what resonated with them and what else we should be thinking about absolutely well thanks again ashraf and we will catch you all next time bye i hope you enjoyed today's episode of why change the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative changemakers around the world, please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. Our show is produced and edited by Daniel Stanley. Our music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. Wow.